Jim Finley lived as a monk at the cloistered Trappist Monastery of the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where the world-renowned monk and author Thomas Merton was his spiritual director. Now, Jim leads retreats and workshops throughout the United States and Canada, attracting men and women from all religious traditions who seek to live a contemplative way of life in the midst of today's busy world. Jim joins us today in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we talk about his insights and reflections on the work of Meister Eckhart. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. The deepest depths of me is by the generosity of God, the deepest depths of God. So that the ground of God and the ground, my God-given ground, are one ground. So all of life is trying to find our way to the ground, where my ground and God's ground are one ground. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. This is where we chat about what it looks like and what it feels like and what it means to make music with our lives, our relationships, and our careers. Um, Just about two or three weeks ago, uh, I found that it was time for me to dive into an individual named Meister Eckhart. Uh, it seemed like every book I read, every person that had been a beacon for me, um, just quoted this individual so often and so many times. And so uh, I went into Amazon, downloaded a book called Meister Eckhart's Living Wisdom, uh, which was an audio, audio book um, by Dr. Jim Finley. And uh, I can tell you that this was about a six-hour audiobook, and in two weeks, I've already listened to it three times, so I've, I've sat with Jim now for about 18 hours, and I just thought, this is a man that I need to learn from, sit at his feet, and uh, listen to the wisdom that he has, both his insights uh, that he brings into the world and his reflections on Meister Eckhart. So with that being said, what a joy it is to introduce Dr. Jim Finley to our friends at Let the Music Play podcast. Jim, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Glad we can have this time together. It's good. Well, uh, it's it's what a joy it is to uh, hear your voice. You've ridden shotgun with me now for uh, uh, many times, and it's just a beautiful experience to uh, get to share this time with you. So grateful for your generosity. Um, where where do you begin when you introduce uh, yourself and your story uh, and your work that you've put into the world. For those people that maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, where would you begin? Um, what I what I say briefly is that I was um, I was uh, born and raised in Akron, Ohio. I was the oldest of six children. Uh, my father was an alcoholic, violent alcoholic, so it was a lot of abuse, kind of like that going on growing up. Uh, my mother was a devout Roman Catholic, and uh, I think through her, I think my faith helped me to kind of get through all the things that were happening. Hmm. Um, and in the ninth grade, um, uh, heard about Thomas Merton. And so I read a, a book he wrote called The Sign of Jonas, which is a journal he kept as a monk at the monastery. And um, I was very moved by that book, the beautiful things he said about God's presence in our life and, and so on. I was moved by his descriptions of his life of prayer in the monastery. And so I started writing to the monastery. So when I graduated, I, I entered uh, the monastery and um, lived there as a monk for six years and kind of in this contemplative um, tradition of Christianity. And through Thomas Merton, who was novice master, uh, receiving guidance in interior prayer and contemplation, 
and also through Merton, an openness to the non-Christian contemplative traditions. Mm -hmm. So Thich Nhat Hanh came there from Vietnam, and Abraham Heschel came to meet with him, and B. Griffith came from India, from his ashram in India. And so there was this kind of interfaith dialogue of these contemplative mystical traditions. And and, uh, so when I, I left the monastery, I wanted very much to continue living this contemplative way of life. I got married, had two children, started teaching religion in the Catholic schools, and um, uh, continued my meditation prayer practice. And I wrote a book on Thomas Merton's idea of ultimate identity beyond the ego, the true self, mm. uh, called Merton's Palace of Nowhere. And when that book came out, I started giving retreats around the United States and Canada. And um, someone on one of those retreats offered me a doctorate in clinical psychology, if I would integrate my work with the mystics with deaf psychology. So I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, graduate school for five years of doctoral work in psychology. And so I went to um, a full-time private practice working with adult survivors of trauma and abandonment who want their spirituality to be a resource in their therapy. And then I've continued to give silent contemplative retreats around the country. I just retired last year from my practice, and I don't travel as much anymore. And that first marriage, my children are grown now with grandchildren. That ended, that first marriage ended in divorce. And Maureen, who I've been married to for, I think, 23 years now, um, she's a spiritual director and a therapist, and, and we have this kind of neat relationship with each other. We're very close and kind of share this interior path with each other. Right. And uh, so that's what I, that's how I, that's just, that's the gist of it. That's the little brief. <laughs> I'm, sitting, yeah. I'm sitting here going, oh my goodness. Um, so Thomas Merton, Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, these, when was this? But it, what were the years when a, you were? A, a 61, I graduated in 19, uh, from high school in 1961. And I entered and I left in, I, I left in uh, 1967. Wow. And that was the time that Merton was novice master, so I had got to have him for spiritual direction. And as right at that year, he became a hermit. He got permission when I took temporary vows, so he lived in a hermitage in the woods at the monastery. And then when I left a year later, he went to Asia to um, meet the Buddhists there and so yeah. on. And that's when he died that's when in he 1968. Yeah, he was electrocuted there accidentally in his hotel room on December 10, 1968. So... In the 1960s, Thomas Merton was your spiritual director. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I, I really don't even know what type of question to frame uh, around that. Um, I mean, when, I know you've probably answered this question a, a thousand times in a thousand different ways. What is there anything that stands out, a moment, a specific teaching, uh, his presence, his, his, his eyes, his understanding? What, what did you... What was the gift he left with you? I'd say if I had to kind of, like a starting place to give a sense of him and having him as a teacher, I would say it was the interface of two things. Uh, One, uh, when I was in the ninth grade and I started reading this journal that he wrote, The Sign of Jonas, and on the first page of that journal, uh, Merton said, he said, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude to disappear into the secret of God's face. And at 14 years old, I didn't know what that meant, but something in me said, me too, that, mm-hmm. that, that spoke to me. Mm-hmm. This uh, like communion with the um, 
infinite hidden immensity of God this, uh, in some very deep way. And I saw monasteries as places where people go to commit themselves to that experience. And in believing their fidelity to that, uh, reciprocity of love and silence and prayer touches the whole world in ways we don't understand. Mm. So I went to the monastery and uh, then for three of the years that I was there, got to be with him for regular spiritual direction and guidance in this kind of inner path and so on. It's had a very profound effect on me. And the other side of Merton, and to me putting the two together is what he's meant most to me, is because of the abuse at home, uh, the violence, I had a lot of issues with authority figures. Mm. And, uh, and he was an authority figure to me. He was like bigger than life. And I was 18 when I went right out of high school. And uh, so when I went in, my voice would shake when I would talk to him. I'd be very <laughs> nervous. And uh, he said, what's, you know, what's going on? I, my voice was shaking. I said, I'm so nervous because you're Thomas Merton. And, uh, and I worked at the pig barn. They have a big farm there. And um, he said, every day, I want you to come in here after work from the pig barn before Vespers and come in here and tell me one thing that happened at the pig barn each day. And I can remember, as soon as he said that, I remember thinking, I can handle that. <laughs> and uh, it was a brilliant intervention, really. It might have well, to me becoming a therapist, in a way. <clears throat> and he would uh, he'd put the typewriter aside. He would sit and listen. He remembered all this. And it just leveled the playing field for me. Mm. And uh, I tell people that of all the books Merton wrote and my study of his teachings on mystical union with God and the true self, none of it was more profound than what I learned from him. Uh, about compassion. You know, the Buddhists say compassion is the body of emptiness and the sense of Christ consciousness as recognizing the pain in another person hmm. and being interiorly moved to be with them in a way that it's safer for them to be with you. Wow. It's kind of an experience of God's presence, really. So when I put those two together, this mystical union, you know, embodied in this kind of tender heartedness towards ourself and our fragility, that for me captures um, my main sense of Thomas Merton, I think. Wow. Well, you know, um, being that I was never able to, to meet him or see him in person, you're the closest thing <laughs> that I've that I had to, to speak to him. And uh, wow, that's, that's such a beautiful picture. I, I love that... Um, Safety and compassion were, were two of the themes that you just spoke of. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's move in to um, another mystic, um, Meister Eckhart. And it, you know, I, it, Merton quotes him. Um, uh, Father Richard Rohr has quoted him. All these people that I've read in the last few years have just always go back to... Um, Eckhart and his teachings. And so th it was my first time to really get into who this individual was and, and really um, the beauty that he was unpacking. Uh, and so just again, I'm so thankful for your work on this because um, it just made love and joy and whimsy so much deeper and so much wider after, after reading and listening to your reflections. For, for our listeners that maybe... Um, have no idea as to who Meister Eckhart is. Where do you begin with introducing him to someone? Uh, uh, Meister Eckhart was uh, born in Germany in the year 1260, and uh, died where he lived until his death 
in the till in the year 1328. And as a young man, he entered uh, the Dominican order in the Catholic tradition of Christianity, uh, which is the order of preachers hmm. and scholarship. And uh, so he was known. One is a great theologian. He taught at the University of Paris. He held the chair that Thomas Aquinas held earlier at the University of Paris and all through the Summa Theologica. So, and you can read his Latin writings, which are kind of scripture commentaries uh, to theology students and people going through studies for the priesthood kind of thing. But what he's most known for are his sermons, the, the German works, uh, to the nuns at Strasbourg and uh, some of the churches. And really just and through those sermons, it's really one of the great mystics uh, in, the, in the Christian tradition. So that's who he is. He's a mystic teacher. That yeah. is, he's a person who's had this, this mystical experience, this experience of one that, that although I am not God, I'm not other than God either. And although I'm not any of you, I'm not other than any of you either. And although I'm not the earth, I'm not other than the earth either. Mm. The sense of unit of consciousness. And then he was also gifted with the, with the gift of teaching it, like offering people guidance on how to deepen that experience in their own life. And that's, that's basically, I think, what he's about. So in, in, uh, in that day and age, uh, he was theologically, uh, spiritually, he, he was very, uh, very well accepted. Um, well, he wasn't. He, oh, he wasn't? Uh, no, the, the complexity around all this was that uh, there's two things to this. One, the, the, the Franciscan order, uh, which is, was also through, through St. Bonaventure and through Duns Scotus, on the primacy of love and God's personal creation as a whole kind of theological, philosophical tradition. There was a kind of a friendly um, uh, creative tension between um, the Franciscan tradition on the primacy of love and the Dominican tradition, which following Aquinas, uh, Franciscan tradition follows uh, St. Augustine and Plato, Platonic thought, and uh, Thomas Aquinas followed Aristotle on the primacy of the intellect. Hmm. And so there's a kind of a tension there. Interesting. And, um, and so he, and also another thing about Eckhart was that he, was very bold in his language. He assumed that the nuns he was speaking to were very kind of grounded and mature in their faith. And so he was very radical in the way he spoke about oneness. And it really led to him being accused of heresy, hmm. that, he was, that he was teaching uh, a pantheism, and, uh, that it, and that he was also teaching that the spiritual person is not subject to the moral order. And uh, he said that both were false. Those were not, hmm. he, he's not teaching that at all. The people didn't understand what he was saying, et cetera. And so there was ongoing trials uh, with him and conflict. So he was a conflicted <clears throat> figure during his lifetime. And then what happened, though, over time, kind of everyone kind of moving past that, is what's kind of surface is just the awareness of his brilliance as a mystic. <laughs> yeah, hey, wait, wait a minute, this guy was on to something. He was on to something. And as a theologian, too, he was very aware of the necessary distinctions and, and, and so on. So he's a kind of a paradoxical figure in that way. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. So <clears throat> I wanted to walk through some of the themes of his teaching. And uh, one that was uh, huge for me is this, this idea of detachment, um, yeah. 
when you begin teaching this concept uh, of reflections on Eckhart, um, would you hold my hand and, and hold the listener's hand as to how, how do you begin really what he was unwrapping when you get into this concept of detachment? Yes. You know, first of all, I would say that Eckhart's he's so rewarding, but he's not easy. <laughs> right. And uh, so you have to be patient with yeah. him. And um, um, what I did was Sounds True there on the audio set, and I made reference there to other sources. And my wife, really, she's been reading it for years. There's a little book called The Way of Paradox by Cyprian Smith, mm. which is, makes Eckhart, I think, very accessible. But uh, so in a way to make him as accessible as possible, I'll begin with his teachings on what he what he what he's referring to as detachment. So I'll just think out loud here for a minute. Sure. <clears throat> I think the easiest way to start to understand this is that <clears throat> we all know that at an emotional level, psychological level, sometimes we have to practice self discipline to not give in to destructive ways of treating ourselves and other people. And so, for example, if someone who has an addiction to alcohol or to uh, an addictive substance or someone who is addicted to anger and explosive anger and how they treat people or someone who's addicted to, or say, into uh, avoiding intimacy and the fear of engaging with people, we know that our own growing edges, we somehow have to be detached from uh, painful habits of the mind and heart that cause ourselves and other people to suffer. Mm-hmm. And that discipline um, uh, of doing that then takes us to this deeper, more freer place. And so even though it's hard to go through it, when we're letting go of it, we're so glad we did it when we land in this kind of richer, more freed-up place where we're no longer held in bondage by those things, whatever, <clears throat> you know, whatever they were. So what Eckhart does is he takes that idea and he deepens it. So if we take that approach and expand it, here's one way I put it that helps me to get a sense of what Eckhart means by detachment. It seems to me to be true to Eckhart to say, Eckhart is telling us, is to find that act or to find that relationship or to find that community which, when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation with your self-absorbed self and strangely bring you, brings you home to yourself. Now, another way we could put it would be, um, all things considered, all things considered, what's the most loving thing I could do right now for my body, for my mind, for this person, this child, this family, this community, all things considered. Like, what, what's love asking out of me? Mm. And I think that's what Eckhart means by detachment. Eckhart means to let go of uh, uh, the things that constrict the heart and hold us back from a more generous or spacious or gracious uh, richness of uh, spiritual experience and awareness. I think that's the essence of the detachment for Eckhart. And and so, in a way, you're saying dying to these illusions that we construct. That's uh, right. That that imprison us. Um, that's right. And I think in I think in the audiobook, something that you said that struck me was was a line I've held on to it all week. It was something like, "Anytime we define ourselves 
by anything that's less than love, um, then, then we've attached to the wrong thing. Exactly. Um, wow. Yeah. How I say it. Yeah. I, how I say it is, is that, um, and this is more, would be more in the language I think of, uh, John of the cross or the Franciscan school to say in terms of his love language, but it's so true to Eckhart is that, uh, is that the mystery is, is that the infinite love that is the architect of our hearts has made our hearts in such a way that nothing less than an infinite union with infinite love will be enough for us. <laughs> Can you the, 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 we got to repeat, we got to repeat this. The, the architect of our heart. Yeah, I'll say it. Okay, I'll say it again. Okay. <laughs> that, 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 that the architect of our hearts has made our hearts in such a way that nothing less than an infinite union with infinite love will be enough for us. Let's go. So, so really, so Saint Augustine, <laughs> he's saying, "You made our hearts for Thee, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee." So, uh-huh. no matter where we stop at, I, I think I think I'll stay here. We feel that the heart is still left discontent because it is it's created by infinite love as a capacity for infinite love. There's and always so that, more. There's always there's more always love. More. And it'll go on forever. It, it never ends. It's endless. There's no <laughs> end to the endless. And that's our destiny. So the question then is, how can I, while still on the earthly plane, taste the mystery of that infinite generosity is somehow already present here um, in the midst of the concreteness of my own life if I let go of my constricted heart? Wow. If, if I release what holds me back mm-hmm. from being ever more open and receptive and responsive to the gift and miracle of being alive in the world, then, uh, you know, this is like the path mm-hmm. that my heart kind of leads us on when we start speaking of detachment. And, and we, i.e. the false self, is always the obstacle. Yes, because, see, for Merton, the false self is a term from Thomas Merton, is yeah. the false self is an illusion that the ego has about itself, namely that it has the final say in who we are. I mean, we are ego. Our ego meaning our our common experience as a human being, like the moral me and the moral you, the thinking me and the thinking you, the social me and the social you. So God wants us to have a healthy ego, because if our ego isn't healthy, we suffer. Hmm. A lot of therapy is the healing of the ego. The people you live with might say, I sure wish you'd work on your ego because it's spilling over onto all of us. But the issue is, is that the ego, it doesn't have the final say in who we are, because it's in our ego, we come upon within ourselves what transcends our ego, which is religious experience. See, religious Mm -hmm. experience is kind of being blindsided Hmm. by the intimacy of a certain, like, sacred quality to holding a newborn infant, or to talking with a friend, or sitting at first light, or um, listening to your breathing, that there's moments where, where heart is, our heart is quickened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get a sense of some boundaryless, uh, Eckhart's word is generosity, Galazenheit. Yeah. That if we think of God as generosity, we are the generosity of God. And so there's a moment of being touched, welling up out of the ego, at the intimate immediacy of what transcends our ego. 
and then we're to say yes to that. But the trouble is, the false self then is a part of us that says no to that, mm-hmm. because we're afraid to lose the control that we think that we have over the life that we think that we're living. And even though it's constrictive, it takes courage to kind of breathe into it as an act of trust and see where that takes us. Wow. So I never thought that the, the, the false self, by its very nature, has boundaries. And, and the true self, by its very nature, is boundaryless. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the mystery of incarnation is that the, the boundaryless nature of the true self is not dualistically other mm-hmm. than the boundaries of the ego. The boundaryless nature of the true self is the infinite depth of the ego itself. See, my, 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 my ego, if my ego is really ripe with generosity and openness and trust, then the, the very ordinariness of myself radiates this sense of God's presence. They can actually align. Yeah, and you can sense it wow. in the person. You can tell you're in the presence of somebody. Yeah. You know, who has somehow landed in a very good place. You know, they're very um, present and compassionate and, uh, and vulnerable and real. It, there's someone whose presence makes the world a better place to be. And then you say, well, how? I, I want to be like that. Yeah. How can I die to my dreaded and cherished illusions about myself wow. so that I can kind of emerge into this richness of who I'm called to be? <clears throat> That's really the path of Meister Eckhart. Wow. All the mystics, really. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So we can actually pull the energy from our true self to empower the false self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we turn to the true self, yeah. which is which is really <clears throat> presence of God being poured out as the very presence of ourself. Mm. That is God is God is God is the infinity of God, the generosity of God is that God infinitely gives the infinity of God away as our own deepest identity. Mm. And so what, what, then so then we turn towards that. See, for the for the courage and the guidance and the inspiration and the patience to to kind of with great compassion work through the stuck places in ourselves that we're afraid to let go. Wow. Oh man, this is awesome. By the way, <laughs> it is awesome. I, I am loving this. Um, oh, is that noise in the way? Can you hear that? Is that no, you're fine. Time? No, you're okay. fine. <laughs> Everything belongs. It's all good. Um, okay. Lawn mower outside. Um, so talk to me about Galazenheit. Uh, and first off, did I even pronounce that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I had to say someone in Germany sent me a letter listening to my audio set and they let me know I was not pronouncing it right. Oh, gotcha. And, uh, so I said, that's the way an Irishman pronounces it. So <laughs> if that's a German, they told me how to pronounce it. I can't remember. Anyway, that's, that's the anglicized version. Uh, Galazenheit. <laughs> um, what Galazenheit is for Eckhart? This really helps us move deeper into Eckhart, actually. Is the word Galazenheit, you can see the word Lazen in Galazenheit, Galazenheit, which is related, the etymology of the word lazy, hmm. like Lazen. And the idea, Eckhart's idea about God, that God's very laid back about being God, like God's not uptight about it at all. And God's so relaxed about being God, God gives being God away. As the ground of our mind, that that that, that our own that that the that the deepest depths of me is by the generosity of God the deepest depths of God. 
Wow. So that the ground of God and the ground, my God-given ground, are one ground. So all of life is trying to find our way to the ground, hmm. where my ground and God's ground are one ground. And so Galazanite, then, is the generosity of God being poured out as the very reality of ourself and our nothingness without God. That is, if God would stop loving me into my chair at the count of three, at the count of three I would disappear. Yeah. Because I'm nothing, absolutely nothing, outside. And, in other words, it's not like I say, I say, you know, I sure hope God helps me to know how to respond in a helpful way to your questions. Because um, if God doesn't help me, I'll muddle through, you know, yeah. I'll make but it'll go a lot better if God helps me. But if God doesn't love me into the present moment to say these things, there's no me here to say it. No. Because there's, I'm absolutely nothing outside the presence of God. Is reality itself giving reality to everything real. But my very nothingness without God makes my very presence to be the presence of God. And that's the great paradox. See, wow. my very nothingness without God makes my very presence to be the presence of God. But although that's true, we fear our nothingness. See, the false self tries to, uh, possessiveness of heart, yeah. tries to cling and to own itself because it's afraid. And so how to breathe into our own poverty and discover in the poverty the richness of God being poured out as our life. That's the great riddle, I think, for mm. all of us. If God were to stop loving us, we would disappear in the chairs we're sitting in. That's right. If God <laughs> would stop loving the whole universe into existence, the whole universe would vanish. <laughs> and that means that the universe is God's body, because the universe is, embodies the love that's uttering it into being. And so this is the idea that we're all siblings of the infinite, like brother, son, and sister, moon. Mm -hmm. And this is the sacredness of the material world. This is the sacredness of... Of, of the immediacy of all things, but we can't see that sacredness because of attachment, hmm. see, because of possessiveness of heart. Hmm. The heart constricts and we can't see it, but that's why whenever we love, our heart opens. And as the heart opens, we get information. Yeah. Of this, like our heart knows that it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. If, our fist, if our hands are closed in a fist and we're attached, we, we can't hold this infinite generosity and which means we then can't give it away either. Exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. This is cosmic. Yeah. <laughs> see, what I tell people in therapy, see where I think this touches therapy, <clears throat> is that, that um, how I put it is, that, say, a little girl uh, cannot give herself the experience of her own preciousness. She has to see it mirrored in her parents' eyes. Hmm. But what if her parents, through their own brokenness, see, what if uh, the very ones she depends on to mirror back her preciousness so she can internalize it are the very ones who are incesting her or beating her or uh, they, they look at she looks into their eyes and they don't look back. And so we, we have this traumatized capacity to experience our preciousness because we've internalized that abandonment or we've mm -hmm. internalized that. And so this is where, this is the, the messy intimacy of this, is why we need to be very compassionate and tenderhearted and understanding what our fear is made out of, that we're not, we don't claim because we're bad, we claim because we're afraid. Hmm. So how can we gently breathe into a more spacious, open way to walk through these things with clarity? And uh, 
That's what's so intimate about it, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. And and so through that intimacy, um, as you receive the generosity of God, this universal generosity, um, and simultaneously you detach, you then also come to realize that, that nothing is missing and there's nothing to attain. Exactly. Exactly. That that. How I put it to to take another image from Eckhart, where he talks about it and an image. Um, see if I can find the quote right here. Just make it. Um, he says, um, uh, "Here's how Eckhart talks." These are two quotes from the sermons, and I'll paraphrase it. Creatures are mere nothingness. I do not say they are small or anything at all. They are mere nothingness. That's what I was saying earlier mm-hmm. about the nothingness of all things apart from God. Mm-hmm. What does not possess being is nothingness, but no creature has being, for its being depends on the presence of God. Were God to withdraw for an instant from all creatures, they would be annihilated. And he goes on to speak of this in terms of an image. And I'd like to paraphrase that part here about what we're talking about, this sense of God's the image that I use is imagine that you're standing in front of a full-length mirror and imagine the image of you as conscious. That is, as a conscious thinking image of you. And imagine this image of you has been through a lot of therapy and has gone through a lot of self-help workshops and, and so on. And it's, it's come to the point that it thinks it no longer needs you. And so it tells you it's going to branch out on its own. You try to explain to the image of you that you don't think it'll go well without you since it's an image of you. But the the, the image will hear nothing of it. You're trying to hold me back and so on. And so to prove your point, you step halfway off the side of the mirror, half the image disappears, has a panic attack, has to go back into therapy. It says, I'm not real, I'm not real. Now the image is real, it just wasn't real the way it thought it was real. Hmm. And so there's no substance to the separate autonomous self apart from the infinite love of God that the self itself is manifesting in the world. And so as we grow into this Galazanite, that the reciprocity of generosity, as we give ourselves with generosity to the love that gives itself to us, we come into this fullness, and in that fullness, we're able to see that fear has no foundations. Hmm. You know, we're able to see that nothing's missing anywhere. And uh, that's the great... That's the birth of the word in the soul for Eckhart. Yeah. And and would you say that this is what rescues us from anxiety of tomorrow and shame and guilt from yesterday? Um, it does. And, and but how I put it like as a journey. See, there's part of there's there's that in us that gets it, and there's part of us that doesn't get it yet. <laughs> and so so the part of us that gets it, we hear talk like this and it rings true. And in our better moments we know that it's true. Yeah. But there's still the part that's still afraid, especially when it gets triggered by something that yeah. threatens. Yeah. Yeah. So the art form is compassion. See, how to be tender-hearted towards that in us that doesn't get it yet. So instead of attacking it with shame or wishing it would go away, we learn to let the wounded part of ourselves kind of be our teacher by teaching us to be endlessly tender-hearted toward yeah. the part of us that's still afraid and still confused. Yeah. And then that gives us empathy with others because we're all yeah. walking around in variations of the same dilemma. Yeah. yeah. The art form is compassion. It is. It really is. It is the art form. It really is. Yeah. 
Uh, Jim, this this is this is what will save the world. It, yeah, it, I think so true. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm just sitting here going, "Oh, this is this is such a beautiful dialogue." Um, so then, then walk with me with what is meant by the birth of the word in the soul. If, if along the lines we were saying, like right now, so let's say detachment <clears throat> is this letting go of fear, mm-hmm. you know, this letting go possessiveness of heart, because you're learning to breathe into the generosity of God being poured out as every breath and every passing moment of your life and through prayer, meditation, just daily life, little by little, this kind of spaciousness is growing in you. So as detachment deepens, really this kind of purity of um, simplicity and openness and acceptance and all of that. The birth of the word in the soul, then, is Eckhart's poetic language for how then everything appears through our awakened eyes. Hmm. And I want to give an image here of how Eckhart approaches this in terms of the the kind of the 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 poetry of creation in the kind of philosophical theology of the Christian tradition. It would go like this, it would go like this, is that when God created water, like in Genesis 1, like let there be light and let there be, the let it be of God bringing all things into existence, which is ongoing, perpetual. That when, Poetically, we would say that when God created water, God didn't have to think up what water might be, because through all eternity, God eternally contemplates water in himself or in herself. And in the Trinitarian mysticism, that God is Father, God is Mother, God is Origin. Eckhart says God's like a woman in labor giving birth to God, that God's perpetually expressing himself as a word. Hmm. And then God contemplates himself, herself in the word. And then God contemplates in the word the eternal possibility of all things. So God eternally contemplates the essence of water. This is water in God before God created anything. And since whatever is in God is God, this is the divinity of water, the eternality of water. So when God says, let there be water, God brings into existence out here in time and space what water is eternally is in God. But the ego, the false self, doesn't see that when it sees water. You know, it sees something to wash your hands with or Mm -hmm. something to do the laundry with, whatever. But if you contemplate water... Carl Jung says, how can we claim the years have taught us anything if we have not learned to sit and listen to the secret that whispers in the brooks? <laughs> that you spend a day alone at the water's edge, and you get intimations of divinity in the sound of running water. Same with fire. When God said, let there be fire, God didn't have to think of what fire is, because through all eternity, God eternally knows what fire eternally is. In God, and since everything in God is God, this is the divinity of fire. Mm. The ego doesn't see that. It just sees something to burn the trash with or boil water with. But if you gaze into the flames, if you contemplate fire, you see the divinity, the holiness, the sacred nature of fire. And, And so that's really the birth of the word in the soul. You begin out of detachment. You begin to kind of experientially realize the, the divinity, the concrete immediacy of everything. So when you say the birth of the Word in the soul, are you referring back to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, or is this a different 
No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, no, no, it's, this is exactly where Eckhart goes with this. See, in John 1, 1, see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, and all things were made through him. Without him has been made nothing that has been made. And so then Eckhart says, well, if God is eternally giving birth to the Word, to know that God gives birth to the ground of your soul no differently and God is giving birth to God in the Word. Hmm. That is, the, gen- the Galazan height of God is that God himself does not hold back any distinction yeah. between the infinite divinity of the Word and the infinite divinity of the ground of your own mind in the Word, and that's the ground of the mind. Wow. Through detachment, we're liberated from all that hinders us from realizing that. See, that, that in some way, then that the deepest depths of the depths of me is by the generosity of God, the deepest depths of God given to me is my own deepest reality. And then God and I disappear as other than each other. See? The, eye, is, the eye through which I see God is the, yeah, eye, through which the eye through which God sees me. Exactly. See, that's that, that's that unitive state. Now, this doesn't mean, see, the paradox is kept alive. This doesn't mean we are God. Right. Because this is only true because we're absolutely nothing without God. And because we're absolutely nothing without God, this is the divinity of us, like this. That's the paradox. And this, and so this is where the, the locale of where all this happens is the soul. You, you talk about the fertility of the soul yes. uh, in us. Um, you want to walk with me on that, on just the soul being the place where we receive, accept, and give? Such things. Yeah, yes, yes. See, I think we could say the soul. The soul has different meanings in different contexts in this tradition. But basically, we could say, in the light of Eckhart, that the soul is the interiority of ourself, is our soul. See, that is, there's the exteriority of ourself, what ends up on a resume or with some nose. Here's how I put it Notice that when you don't know someone very well, how easy it is to say a lot about them. Hmm. You know, let me tell you about so and so. When you love someone very, very deeply for a long, long time, you hardly know what to say, and your, heart, and your heart breaks when you try, and that's because you know the person's soul. Gabriel Marcel says, to really love someone is to glimpse in them that which is too beautiful to die, See, and that's the soul. So the soul is the, is the divinity of the intimate interiority of ourself, and this is where prayer and meditation comes in, mm-hmm. you know, that we quietly set time aside for a kind of a rendezvous with ourselves in the presence of God so that we can slow down enough to catch up with ourselves and find this interiority within our self and then live out of that as we go through the day. Yeah. Wow. It, ha- it, it has to begin there. I mean, if, exactly. it, if, if we don't begin there each day, then we play catch up. That's right. It's really true. And I, I say this too as a therapist. And see, sometimes it begins by knowing, like, let's say just falling in love with someone. You know, it's an amazing experience. You're falling in some, with someone who's falling in love with you. But then it dawns on you, I can't really be there for and with this person if I don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. See, if I'm not present to myself, how can I be present to this person? Likewise, when a couple has a child, see, it dawns on a person. How can I really be deeply present to this child? If I'm someone, I'm not even present to myself. Thomas Merton once said, is it possible you could live your whole life and never meet the person who's lived, who's lived your life? 
he said, that's a scary thought, like an effigy of yourself, yeah. you know, through a persona or an image and whatever. So how can I get quiet enough with, with my loved one or my friend or in the midst of nature or in the midst of poet, a poem or whatever it is that helps me to get to the deeper place where I get in touch and grounded with my own soul, which is where all this unfolds in this interiority. Wow. What was that Merton quote again? Can you go your whole life? Oh, yeah. He said, he said, is it possible you could live your whole life and never meet the person who's lived your life? <laughs> he, said, God, he said, to be unknown by God is altogether too much privacy. Wow. <laughs> and he says, God doesn't know your illusions of who you think you are. God eternally knows who you eternally are. And how can you oh, learn wow. to join God in knowing who God knows that you are so you and God both know who you are? So good. <laughs> Let's good. go. Yeah, good. Yeah. Oh my gosh, man! Um, I could do this all day. Um, what a gift! So, so the, the, one of the last things that that I took from the book, uh, one of the themes is this idea of breaking into the Godhead. Yes. Um, walk with me on that for for maybe people who have never been privy to, to Eckhart's teaching. Um, yes. What are we talking about when we talk about breaking yeah. into the Godhead? Yeah, into the Godhead. One of the books I like so much on Eckhart is called Wandering Joy, uh, Joy Without a Cause by Reiner Sherman. And this is how he, well, paraphrase Reiner Sherman on breakthrough. So it goes like this, like what is breakthrough into the Godhead? Let's say we start out the journey in a life of attachment, which is possessiveness of heart. And let's say through a process of detachment, uh, we've, we've kind of opened up into this spaciousness that we've been talking about in this process of letting go. And in this process of letting go, we enter into the birth of the word, <clears throat> which is living to this experience of ourselves and everyone and everything around us as being the generosity of God. And so you, you look out, and Eckhart says in a way, it is as if God... And, and the soul and all things are like holding hands and dancing in a circle in a kind of ecstatic dance of infinite mutuality with each other. Mm. See that every, everything is interwoven with each other as a kind of a divine interplay of the sacredness of, the, of, of reality itself. Divine symphony. The Divine Symphony, that's right. Then the next question comes in, what could possibly be the origin of such grandeur? In other words, you start to try to think the origin. See, how, mm. see what could possibly, from whence could such unsinkable generosity arise? Arise. And Eckhart says, see, it's the anarchy of the ineffable. It arises without a why. He says, when, he says, when you set a horse loose in the morning to run across the field, he said it runs with all of its might. And he said, how, how does it run? He says, it runs without a why. Mm. He says, a rose blooms, it blooms without a why. He said, this is the anarchy of the ineffable. Because in the Godhead, which is really the infinite poverty or emptiness of God, even prior to the Trinity, see, it's, a, it's an infinite desert of uh, abyss-like stillness from which arises the trinity arises creation arises velatio the birthing but, but it arises 
out of the infinite poverty of God without a why. I call it the anarchy of the ineffable. Hmm. And therefore, he says, how do I? How can I learn to live without a why? How can I learn to live without looking for reasons? See, how can I learn to live? He says, why do? He said, why do I? Um, why do I love justice because of justice? See, why do I love truth because of truth? He said, well, why do I love being alive? He said, my word, I don't know, but I sure love being alive. <laughs> and, and so life has about it the kind of infinite secrecy of the poverty of God. It's kind of a poetic intuition here. that this infinite emptiness. There's no intentionality in the Godhead. And so prior to intention, it's just the anarchy of emptiness pouring itself out and manifesting itself as divine relations of knowledge and love. He calls balazio, or the boiling of stillness as the activity. The intimacy is the first manifestation of the manifested mystery of God, which mm-hmm. is the, the Trinitarian life. And then a balazio, it boils over as the universe. Wow. As you and I having this talk right now, this is the boiling over. But our destiny, our destiny is, is, is the Godhead. That is, we will not rest see, until we join God in the secret poverty of God prior to all manifestation whatsoever. It's eternally pouring itself out as manifestation. And so that's the Godhead. The Godhead is a sense of utter secrecy or another kind of solitude or another kind of infinite secret without intentionality that's pouring everything out unexplainably. Without and a why. Would, uh, without a why. <laughs> Without a why. He said, I'm not yet free as long as I'm still searching for a why. Because uh, at the deepest possible level, there's no why. Now, in relative consciousness of relative reality, there is a why. Mm-hmm. You know, we have tensions, and that's important. But to talk about this infinite freedom that Eckhart is saying is our destiny, it's, it's beyond a why. It just is. It just is. <laughs> uh, the pure generosity, the anarchy of the ineffable. It's just the anarchy of infinite freedom giving itself away as reality. And then we're to, we're to live that way, too. You know, we're not to, we're just to be in the flow of this general, the, like the promptings of what love might ask of us, and like ride the ways of circumstance. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a tattoo, but if I was going to get one today, it would say the anarchy of the ineffable. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Have it on your arm. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, wow. This is, uh, I mean, you can spend a life in this stuff. I, I, I think that's why I'm so drawn to it is because every time I revisit it, it's like the ocean, it, the waves get better. It gets deeper. The fishing's better. The sunsets are better. It's like every time I go back to the beach of this riding, it's that's a right. whole new world. That's right. And I, and I tell people, you won't live long enough to figure this out. <laughs> and, Let's and you go. Know, you know, St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the early fathers of the church, he had what he called glory unto glory. And what he says, in effect, to paraphrase it, he's after we've been in heaven for a trillion years, and you're finally getting the hang of it. You know all the angels on a first-name basis. A God pulls a lever, and eternity starts all over again. Amen. See, oh, it, it goes on. And there's no end to endlessness. And that endlessness of God is our very identity given to us by God. And so it just it shows you how rich the, these. I wanted to read you this lovely quote here from um, 
E.E. E. Cummings, yeah. uh, which I like, which is fun. He says, uh, I like E.E. E. Cummings a lot. He says, what got him was nothing. And nothing's exactly what anyone living or somebody dead, like even a poet, could hardly express. What I mean is, what knocked him over wasn't, for instance, knowing your whole yes, goddamn life is a flop, or even to feel how everything dreamed and hoped and prayed for months and weeks and days and years and nights and forever is less than nothing, which would have been something, which got him was nothing. You know, it's like you're left speechless. You know, you're just left with, you're mm -hmm. silent by it. Just absolutely, which is the silence of contemplation. And then when you speak, you're to speak out of that silence. Mm -hmm. So you're bearing witness yeah. to how yeah. amazing life is and helping other people do the same. And it just, it's just, uh, it's been so rich for me to, you know, been led into this. It's, it's just, uh, it's just very rich, Yeah. Well, that just connected some dots for me because I'm thinking of my personal journey with this contemplative heritage and the mystics and their writing and the eyes they've given me to see with. And, and when you arrive at this wonder and this awe and this reverence, it, it is a very silent posture. Um, it is. You, it you, is. You feel like the gut reaction to this stuff should be this big rah rah ch God chant, but it's 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 more of like when Merton was at the corner of that street in Kentucky and everything you know he saw that every yeah. soul was was ablaze. Um, you just yeah. you just you just stand back and try to pull your jaw off the floor. Is really? is kind of yeah. And you know where this really strikes home for me, too, in terms of where this meets with therapy for me, is that my experience in therapy is, is that, and for myself, too, going through my own therapy, is that sometimes a person will come in and they'll start the session by saying, you know, before we get started today, I'd like your opinion on something. And I always feel myself relaxing because opinions are cheap. You know, everyone's mm -hmm. got an opinion. Mm -hmm. you know? But to really, really listen to the person, you know, to, to be detached. Mm-hmm my own assumptions, and just listen so that the question I ask will be such the person can answer without listening more deeply to themselves. Mm -hmm. And that kind of uh, like reverential attentiveness brought to every moment of our life, you know, I think it's just really very transforming. And then when we speak, to speak out of that. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's all here. It, it's all unfolding in the now. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Oh man, beautiful. Well, I, th this has been um, such a gift. Thank you for your time and generosity. I, I, I sure hope that we can cross paths. Um, I'd love to attend one of your contemplative retreats sometime. Yeah, just look at my website there, and if it ever happens, let me know in advance. I'll see if we have some time to sit and connect with each other. And I did this because I looked at your site. I just see the sincerity in it and the goodness that's in it, and. Mm you know, feeling called to pass this on to other people. So this is what it's all about well, for me. So I was glad that we could spend this time together and that other people can share, listen in with us and share in it. So that's what it's all about, passing it on. So, so, so good. So thank you so much. I, um, If our listeners are interested in you and your work, uh, downloads, books, and so forth, uh, contemplativeway.org, is that where you'd send them? That's right. 
contemplativeway.org. And then if you click, a, there's a newsletter you can sign on to. And I tell people it's a monthly newsletter that comes out three times a year because I have issues. And um, it comes out whenever, I, whenever I'm able to, to do it. But um, I'm increasing, if you get on the newsletter, I'm increasing the, the presence of the website where I hope to record my talks here from my home and just post them as audio files and video files. And I'm more involved with the living school now too with Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bergeau. And then yeah. what sounds true also with Tammy Simon with this book on healing. So if they're interested in this approach, if it speaks to them uh, by going on my website and getting on the newsletter, they can kind of stay in touch with that. And, uh, and by the way, on the website uh, right now on the archived, newsletters i have a list of readings in the mystics for beginners gotcha and uh just things like that trying to make this as, as accessible doing what you're trying to do really yeah. how to make this as accessible as possible to people so. it's such a gift it is such a gift these new eyes um and it it's i feel like there's an awakening too right now i think a lot of people um are really looking a little bit backwards before we move forwards to hear, uh-huh. hear some of these voices um uh-huh. And on behalf of uh, all of us, thank you so much for your good and necessary work, Jim. Thank you so much, too, for inviting me to have this time with you and with all of them, too. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Absolutely, sir. Okay, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon, and uh, hopefully we can get you on for another interview sometime. Okay, yeah, just keep in touch. All right, my friend. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jim as I did. It was packed full of gold and so much truth and so much beauty. Uh, I'm going to have to listen to it many, many more times. Uh, But as you listen to it and you reflect on it, be sure to go to his website, contemplativeway.org. Purchase uh, his writings, his audiobooks, uh, and if you're in his neck of the woods sometime, be sure to attend uh, one of his retreats. And as we approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be love. Today's episode is brought to us by Holsty. Holsty explores what it means to live a life of intention and reflection through art, words, and action. Through their monthly subscription, Holsty examines themes inspired by the science of mindfulness, positive psychology, and ancient philosophy. Each month, subscribers receive letterpress prints illustrated by emerging artists, along with action lists and digital toolkits, encouraging further exploration and reflection. Holstie's journey began in 2009 with the viral popularity of their company manifesto, a call to arms around how their founders define success. They couldn't have imagined how much these words would resonate around the world. The Holstie Manifesto was called the next Just Do It by the Washington Post. It's been translated into 13 languages and has received an estimated 100 million social media views. With the encouragement of their global community, they developed the monthly Holstie subscription to help people put the words of the manifesto into action. Be sure to go to Holstie.com slash Ashton and use the checkout code Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N, to get your first month's free of the Holstie subscription.